every day looking at the earth from the cupola, poof, it's this, I mean, it's nature at its best. It beats the view you have from any mountaintop. You are like in awe of natural beauty whenever you look outside the window. That's Canadian astronaut David Saint-Jacques speaking from space. Now back here on Earth, he's our guest as we kick off season two of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth and it's just a fantastic experience and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people We have Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us in this, it means that in the oral history is very strong. Yeah, we flew all over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 165 or so. Hi, and welcome back to the second season of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. I'm your host, David McGuffin, a journalist, foreign correspondent, and fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. And normally, I'd be speaking to you from the Sir Christopher Ndache Reading Room at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society headquarters in Ottawa. But with the world in pandemic lockdown, like many of you, I'm working from home. So I'm coming to you now from the basement of my house in the Gatineau Hills. All the same, it's great to be back with you for season two. I hope you and your family and loved ones are all managing as well as possible during this pandemic and taking good care of each other. And we hope this second season will help give you an occasional break from the news of the day. Beyond today's visit to the cosmos with David Saint-Jacques, this season we're going to spend several episodes taking a closer look at the history of what is arguably the most important company in shaping Canada into what it is today. The Hudson's Bay Company turns 350 years old on May 2nd. As a British fur trading empire, it once controlled 11% of the Earth's landmass, much of that in northern and western Canada. And to kick that off, on April 30th, we'll visit the Cree community of Wiscoganish on James Bay, home of the first Hudson's Bay Company trading post way back in 1670. So please check back in with us for what should be a fascinating exploration into Canada's past. But for today's episode, throttling up, we're looking up to the stars. And liftoff. Anne McLean, David St. Jacques, and Oleg Kononenko blasting through the Kazakh sky to the International Space Station. Our guest today knows a thing or two about quarantine and self-isolation. Last year, astronaut David Saint-Jacques completed a 204-day mission on board the International Space Station. That's the longest mission in space ever by a Canadian. Born in Quebec City and a married father of three children, David Saint-Jacques has a degree in engineering and a medical degree and a PhD in astrophysics. Oh, and he also has his commercial pilot's license. He practiced medicine in an Inuit community in northern Quebec for several years, before turning his sights to a career in the cosmos with the Canadian Space Agency. We recorded this conversation at the Canadian Aviation and Space Museum in Ottawa before the COVID-19 pandemic began, but it's remarkable how much of it speaks to this moment of self-isolation that we find ourselves in. There's a lot to be learned right about now from someone who spent seven months on a space station. And I began by asking David Saint-Jacques what that experience was like. It didn't feel that long. I could have stayed longer. 
you get into a rhythm and I, I, th I felt like maybe this is like what it feels like to be a monk. Do your task well every day and every day and if there's satisfaction in the, the competency that comes with repetition. The human experience of a space mission is, is central. I mean, human spaceflight is all about the human in the spaceflight. And uh, Alec uh, Kalinenko and Anne McLean, who were uh, writing the Soyuz with me, we had been training for years. And when we found ourselves uh, on space station together, um, you know, it was, we already were getting along, uh, but it just got more intense. And I realized at some point that we are, we're more than crewmates, we're more than colleagues, it's, we're more than friends in a way, or it's different, we're really like siblings. You quarrel sometimes, of course. There's gonna be, you know, discussions, disagreements. You gotta make up because you, you are, you, life has put you together and you are going to be in the same place. So it's a really intense and really, uh, really kind of deep relationship of mutual trust. It's based on mutual trust. You constantly put your life in the hands of each other. And so that respect is really anchored into technical competency and uh, uh, you know, complete trust in each other's skills and respect for each other's bubble. Um, so it was, that aspect was really, really intense and a beautiful experience. I asked Saint-Jacques what he meant when he compared his time on the space station to being like a monk. There were like seasons on board. So we got there and there's a season of adaptation where you're all confused, you lose everything all the time, you're learning to fly, you're completely dependent on the senior crew who's been, who was there to open the hatch for you when you got there. And they're like amazing, they can do everything. They... So that was a few weeks of adaptation. After the departure of um, Alex and Serena, um, there was just the three of us on board space station. And it's uncommon to have just three people on board the station for so long, for several months, just because of the vagarities of uh, Soyuz launch and return. And that was the most kind of monastic part. We did a lot of experiments, a lot of maintenance tasks, but every day was like, you're just trying to do the same thing a bit better. Every day you wake up, here's your schedule, talk to the ground, talk to scientists, talk to the engineers, the controllers, gather equipment, do an experiment, repair something that's broken, exercise, talk to your family, look at the earth, rinse and repeat for months and months, and you become very, very good at it. Uh, and it's very gratifying, uh, that experience. But it, that was a season where of just, just learning your trade. Yeah? And then we had the visit of, the, uh, of a SpaceX uh, Crew Dragon kind of prototype mission completely different change of pace, very highly visible event, the first docking of a, another human-rated spacecraft coming to space station, very, very exciting. Uh, then there was the arrival of another crew, and it's like another mission starts, yeah. completely different. Yeah, you're, the, you're the old guys now. Yeah, yeah the moment these people come, then you're the, you're the senior crew, they're the rookies, they're the one having to learn to fly, asking a million questions about everything, and you realize, wow, all that monastic phase is now reaping benefits. I know my job. I am comfortable and I, I know everything here. Um, and so it was great to show them the ropes because we passed the baton on from crew to crew like that. It's, I was expedition 58, 59. 
Each expedition is that same cycle since the beginning of Space Station to pass the baton on to the next crew so that one day you can leave and they're going to take care of station. Um, so that was the season with the new crew and we had the spacewalk season and free flyer capture season. I got the chance to uh, use Canadarm uh, to uh, grab a uh, resupply cargo ship. Um, got the chance to first put, help my friends go do a spacewalk. So manage all the airlock and all of that. And then do a spacewalk myself. So it was a very operational season for several months. Let's take a quick break now to hear from the magazine that makes this all possible, Canadian Geographic. Want even more great Canadian Geographic content? Visit cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe to order Canadian Geographic magazine. A subscription gets you six issues of the magazine each year with stories that will entertain, surprise and educate you about the remarkable Canadian landscape, wildlife and people. Subscribe today at cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe. And now back to explore. I then asked David Saint-Jacques what it was like that moment when he stepped out of the space station and into space. Because honestly, just saying that out loud right now sends tingles up my arms. It's interesting. So it's one of those things where you are so focused on the task, you have to actively stop to gather an emotion, right? Um, so you are, we were, and the focus for me is basically takes about two weeks to prepare for a spacewalk get the suit ready, the airlock ready, you know your procedures, all of that. So and you're really, really focused on not, not making that mistake there. Um, and I had the chance to do a spacewalk with Anne. Uh, it was already her second spacewalk, so uh, she was already a veteran. That's how fast you become a veteran. <laughs> and, uh, and so because we knew each other so well, we don't, I mean, Anne and I, we, we can read each other's minds, basically, yeah. Uh, so... It was like the culmination of all that teamwork uh, to be able to do a spacewalk together. And when we, I remember when we left, she left the airlock first and she kind of greeted me outside. And I remember looking outside, looking around and here's the earth behind and space station. And, and there she is and she winks at me like, we made it, buddy. <laughs> Here we are in space. Yeah. And it was beautiful, but we got super busy. Uh, then you just get the ground, hit the ground running, there's tasks and tasks and tasks to do. You've been studying that so hard. And, uh, and, but then I had, got very lucky. There was a beautiful moment where uh, there was a technical glitch with one of the pieces of equipment that I was supposed to install. And uh, I called Houston and I said, this is, here's this problem. And question back and forth. And here comes the instruction, stand by. Okay, standing by. So I had a few minutes there, you know, to myself. What an um, unbelievable luxury to be in a spacesuit, floating as a little independent satellite of the planet, uh, standing by. And so I looked around, took a lot of photos, and I thought to myself, "Wow, I am here. I mean, I should not be here. This, this you cannot. This is this is a forbidden place. You cannot be here. Uh, yet I am here, completely comfortable, because people." Thousands of people have worked so hard and been so creative, and they come from around the world to just make this suit work and make this event possible. And I thought, wow, looking at the Earth, I said, wow, how big is a human? Wow, a human being is really small compared to the world, compared to the universe. I mean, it's impossible to even see a human being from that distance. 
Yet the reach of the human imagination, the reach of the human soul, the possibilities of human collaboration and creativity, that has an immense reach. Here I was in, on orbit, like the, the embodiment of that imagination. Uh, all these people, these thousands of engineers and scientists who had made this possible, they themselves had never been to space, yet they came up with these ideas. And so I really felt like I was part of something immense, human soul, and that we, there's nothing we cannot do. When we put our hearts to it, when we go beyond our differences and focus on what we have in common, which is the majority, really, uh, there's, there's no limit to what we can accomplish. So I came back with, like, an inc really raised my level of confidence in what humanity can achieve because... The challenges are immense, you know? Our beautiful, fragile planet is in jeopardy, and there seems to be no end to conflict. And I mean, and you know, the, the kids, the new generation, they see that all the time, they know, and nobody's more aware of the magnitude of that challenge than, than they are. Uh, but it was a beautiful moment to f have this feeling that there really is no limit to mm. what we can accomplish. So. Going to space gave me, on the one hand, a sense of the magnitude of the challenges ahead of us, but at the same time, a the conviction that uh, the absolute, absolute certitude that uh, we can do it. Yeah. I guess if people got us in this problem, they can get us out of it too, That's right? That's right. Yeah. You talk about your soul too. Are you religious at all? Or? I'm, I'm a spiritual person, mm. I would say. Like, I, I crave meaning yeah. in everything I see and everything uh, I do. Uh, there is a... You know, people take, people have different uh, kind of solutions to that, that quest. I think everybody, every, it's at the bottom of the human heart, uh, this, you know, kind of fear in front of, fear in front of death mm. and this sense, uh, a, a strong desire for a meaning uh, to it all. And so we find different solutions to that deep, uh, deep question. Um, for me, you know, I've always, I've always sought uh, that through understanding of how things work, I would kind of get a bit closer to it. So clearly not, uh, not you know, I'm not gonna get to the end of the problem right. that way. But uh, I think it's, I think it's a, f it's a, life is like a, a gift that we're given, and here we are. Might as well do something interesting with it. Right, and being out there, like looking into the cosmos like you were, like sort of unfiltered in a way, I mean, did that, were there moments there that were changed your spirituality or, or? Yeah, so I think that moment I described about on the spacewalk is really the crux of it. Um, um, this, 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 this vision uh, that beyond the fragility of the individual person, there is humanity that transcends us and that has huge reach and huge potential and huge power. And I might explain why, you know, as you, as you become an adult, you, we kind of all tend to, to live a bit more for others, you know, to live, seek something bigger than ourselves uh, that we can live for. Uh, because it, even though sometimes it can look like a sacrifice or you're giving away yourself, it's not. It's somehow, it's a source of growth. You just uh, of empowerment in a way um, to 
to to have the privilege to do something for everybody. Yeah. yeah. So when I interviewed Roberta Bonder, she said, she described liftoff, and this was in the space shuttle, obviously, though. She said it was so far from Star, Star Trek. Trek and Flash Gordon. This is like the most rudimentary tin can possible. It's in, just being inside a Roman candle, being inside an explosive device. I'm just wondering what, what, what your experience was like, that moment of liftoff. You were, I guess, Baikonur, were you? Or yes, so I saw the Soyuz yeah. in the space station. So the Soyuz is an incredible piece of machinery. It is so utterly reliable by design through layers and layers of redundancy. But they didn't pay so much attention to comfort. <laughs> you know? It will get you to space safely for sure. Uh, but you might, you, your knees might hurt. <laughs> so my experience of liftoff was just like that. We, um, I trained for years in the simulator and the, the Soyuz simulators in Star City in Moscow are perfect. I mean, they are actual Soyuz capsules. So you really know the environment very, very well. You know your procedures inside out. And what you're not really prepared for as you wear, walk out there with your spacesuit is the sight of the rocket itself, uh, all fuming, you know, as the uh, cryogenic fuel kind of evaporates. And uh, it's like it's like in, in a little fog in and of itself. It's kind of humming. Um, the, uh, you climb up the ladder to it uh, uh, with a ceremonial little kick in the derriere. <laughs> it's one of those Russian traditions. I know. Yeah. And... Uh, that part you never simulated. That part was new. From the moment you start to climb up the stairs and walk on the gantry, then you're in a world you've never seen before. You've never simulated. You've never, this is like new. You crawl into the Soyuz capsule, and then it looks like the simulator again. And you go back into that bubble. I've been here. I know what to do. Go through all your checklists. But then the rocket engines start. That you've never experienced before that push that squishes you in your seat, the vibrations, you're like accelerating, 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 accelerating. Boom, here comes staging as we jettison empty uh, reservoirs and start a new rocket, a new section of the rocket. You were all focused on all the things we have to do uh, on the way to orbit and kind of looking at all the dials and everything's going well. Boom, 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 perfect, as just as we expected. And then eventually you're so busy with all that and then comes the eight and something minute mark. You have reached a ridiculous speed of eight kilometers per second and the engines stop. And then it becomes eerily quiet and you're strapped into your seat so you don't really start to float. But the Russians have this fun tradition. Uh, the crew can bring, we bring stuffed animals like a present from our children, a little stuffed animal. I had a little raccoon that all my three kids uh, played with. And this stuffed animal is hanging at the end of a string. So as you're riding the rocket up, the string is really taut. You know, as this, and when you reach orbit, then it starts to float. And so that's the lowest tech possible zero-g indicator, but it works perfectly. Stuffed animal on Stuffed a string. Stuffed animal on a string. It starts to float. Here we are. High five. We made it to space. And it was at night. the launch was in the evening. And by the time we were riding up, uh, we were entering the night. And a few minutes later came the first my first sunrise from orbit. 
And, you know, there's little portholes on the Soyuz, a couple of inches diameter. And uh, that was my first sight of uh, the curve of the Earth and the colors of the sunrise on orbit. It was so touching. I can close my eyes and still see that sight, and it sends shivers down my spine. Like, wow, this is, this is reality. We are in space. Incredible ride. And, uh, you know, Soyuz made it completely perfectly up there. Then a couple more hours as we inch our way towards space station and docked, clunk, and here we are, uh, attached to space station. A couple of leak checks, opened the hatch, and uh, our friends uh, welcomed us to space. Uh, it's all, and it's bizarre. You enter space station, we've spent so much time training in the mock-ups at Johnson Space Center and in Star City. Everything was a somehow familiar, but completely weird because right. you're floating, right. right? Right. But you've all seen it on video before. You've been in those mock-ups, but it's just so strange to be floating. And the first thing that uh, my good friend Alex Gist, the, the German astronaut who was, who was uh, our commander at that point, did is he brought me to the cupola to have a view of the Earth mm. right now in full daylight. Which is kind of a glass dome. It's like a, Yeah, it's like a dome on the belly of station. So it's looking at the Earth. Beautiful. And uh, you can, I mean, you can kind of curl up in a little ball completely inside that dome, uh, uh, like like the turret of a tank. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and uh, was, I was gobsmacked. Yeah. Yeah, it's so graceful to see the earth. Yeah. The iridescence of the atmosphere is unbelievably beautiful. Yeah. That blue light, that blue glow, and the clouds, and the, at night you see, you know, the cities, the city lights, you see where, where humans are. It's just kind of quietly, gracefully turning there on the black velvet of space. And you look around and all, everything else you see is what this, the moon, which is just a big rock, the sun, which is a ball of fire, the stars that are impossibly far away. And here is this amazing planet where we all live and it, it's obviously alive and life-sustaining, so fragile. The, 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 the little th the thinness of the atmosphere is uh, really, uh, it's really humbling to think that's, that's it, that's the little bubble we live in. The oceans are like a paint of varnish on the planets. That's how thin they are at yeah. that, from that scale. So it's the only living place, this oasis, in an otherwise completely dead and sterile environment. It was really touching. Yeah. And to have that daily connection uh, with Earth from such a perspective meant that, uh, paradoxically, perhaps, uh, you didn't feel like far away from nature. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, like the best nature show every day. Like the sight, you know, you, you know that, 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 that um, exhilaration you feel when you're on a mountaintop yeah. and you look around? It's, it's that, but, you know times, I don't know how many, because they're so much higher, um, but uh, you, feel, you feel gratitude for this beautiful spectacle mm. of nature. Uh, what an amazing planet we live on. What an amazing spacecraft we're right. all riding. Right. She is keeping us, billions of us, alive in the deadly vacuum of space. Yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's just, it's like, it's the mothership. I start to, I thought of Earth as our mothership. We're in a little baby ship there on space station, and the mothership is Earth. Yeah.
You're a doctor, right? Yeah. And part of what you're doing up there was um, looking at the impact of space on, 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 the, on the human body, which is it's tough. I mean, what's the future for manned space travel? Like, there's talks about going to Mars, whether that's 10, 20, 30 years from now. But, I mean, how do we get there knowing what we know about the impact of space travel on the human body? Yeah, so space, going to space is just bad for you, basically. And uh, initially, like in the... Like in the days of uh, Gagarin and then the, the Mercury astronauts, they didn't really know if we could even live there. They were, you know, one of the first experiments they did is they they asked uh, the astronauts to just try to just try to eat applesauce. Can you can you actually swallow something? Does it work? Uh, can you still breathe? Very very basic questions. Uh, so we've made huge strides, right? They used to just astronauts used to basically. You know, kind of hold their breath almost and just try to survive being in space for you know a, a short while then we went to the moon these were amazing journeys you know maybe 10 days maybe two weeks um huge risks and now we live in space we live in space there has been constant human presence for decades we have an outpost in space this is not science fiction this is reality and a lot of that, what's enabled that is our capacity to keep people alive and kicking there and functional. So life support systems, we need to, you know, recycle CO2, carbon dioxide to get oxygen out of it, just like the plants do for us on Earth. Uh, ultimately, we'll need to produce our own food up there. We can't just, you know, ship cargo all the time. Our water, our recycling is pretty good, but it's not perfect. It's in the 80s percent-ish. We need to go to as near 100 as we can. Uh, you know, basically, we all our urine is recycled. Mm -hmm. All our perspiration from the air conditioning system is recycled. Just like here on Earth, every piece of water that we drink, ultimately, we end up recycling in a way. Nature recycles water for us. Um, so there's that, and then there's medicine. Uh, you know, helping pe astronauts stay healthy up there. There's so many challenges for your body. Your bones kind of dissolve as you get there because... If you're not using them, you're, because you're floating around, everything is so light, your body thinks you're a couch potato. Yeah. <laughs> and so you lose your muscles, your tendons, your bones. Uh, uh, so you get through exercise, you can stimulate that, but you know, it's, it's, it's a fine balance. Um, your vestibular system, your immune system, your cardiovascular system. Uh, psychologically, there's huge challenges also because of the confinement, the difficult environment. Um, on human relationships aspect right. also. So we have made huge strides over decades, and now it's pretty good, but it's not perfect. Yeah. And the biggest challenges to go to Mars is not to go to Mars. We know how to go there. We've sent several rovers and probes. We know how to go there. Can we send people and trust that they will survive the trip, survive the exploration, and survive the trip back? That is the big challenge. Uh, and it requires basically... Again, huge strides in recycling technologies to recycle our water and our, our air, grow food locally. Huge strides in energy management and production, uh, maybe institutionalization. Can we make, if there is, as we think, ice on Mars or on the moon, if we go to the moon, can we, using ice and solar panels, maybe we can make hydrogen and then therefore fuel. Um, we can make water. So... We'll need big strides also in uh, cancer risk reduction because of the danger of exposure to uh, cosmic radiation when you leave 
the protection of the uh, the Earth's magnetic field. Right. So is this all doable? Do you think that it's all doable because human imagination is no limit. Yeah. It's doable, and I think it's a. The way I like to see it is, so you know, space exploration will never be like the priority of humanity. Of course, priority are things like healthcare, education, safe security, uh, employment, the economy. That that's what we need to live. But we have to keep a little bit, a little fraction of our energy for dreaming to progress. That is how humanity has progressed. That's how civilization has developed. We start out metaphorically in the caves, and then on a Sunday afternoon, once they've done everything they needed to do to survive, someone invented fire. And another Sunday afternoon, once they've done everything they needed to survive, someone invented the wheel. And then writing. And then they crossed the plains. And then they started to go look on the other side of the mountain in the next valley. And then they reached the ocean, and they invented boats looked up in the sky, invented airplanes, uh, and we have this spirit in us that we just want to expand our bubble and understand more and be safer and more comfortable. And that is done through incremental little steps of art, science, and exploration. And cumulatively, that's how civilization progresses. And right now, the frontier we're excited about is space. And it's like it's like the perfect excuse. It's so difficult, that ambition. It's the perfect excuse to excite the creativity of the best of us to figure out solutions to these problems that we might not have even contemplated otherwise. But because it's space and it's so cool, people want to people have a go at it and crack that nut. And I think we, the challenges are immense to go to Mars, but we will just because that's, where, that's our frontier now. And we will learn so much on the way. We will have we be forced to work internationally. There's a big aspect of that. I think it will unite humanity. That project. Uh, we will. It will help us with the environmental crisis because of all the strides we'll have to make in resource management. It will help us in the uh, energy crisis because of everything we have to develop in that respect. Uh, medicine. I think it's a great opportunity. Uh, for to expand uh, our expand our frontiers in all sorts of directions, and it's a trip for the next generation. But right now, we're making decisions uh, for the next generations. We're setting the stage for them. We have decided to go forth with uh, the Gateway Program, so Canada will contribute robotics uh, to uh, a future um, kind of a, like a station, not around the moon, but in, in the in cis-lunar space, we call it, uh, uh, somewhere in a, in a gravitational balance between the Earth and the moon. Yeah. And then, we'll, so we'll provide intelligence, artificial, uh, artificial intelligence enhanced robotics uh, for that. We're looking at providing uh, deep space medical healthcare for future deep space missions to enable the autonomy of a cruise, and that will help us, of course, on Earth. Um, everything that we'll figure out uh, for that. Uh, there's, uh, there's also, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of projects uh, yeah. that we're pursuing. Yeah. And yes, you're asking, can we do this? Of course we can. Yeah. Of course we can. We just need to choose to do it. What's next for you? I mean, do you hope to go back? Is that in your plans? I would love to go back, of course. Uh, once, you, once you've seen those sites, uh, you know, you're kind of hooked. But 
I have no illusion. I'm back at the end of a queue now. <laughs> and so uh, now my, my job as a, as, a, as a flown astronaut is to uh, help mentor uh, the other astronauts to be an instructor, uh, to work in mission control, um, in support of missions. Astronauts are a bit like, it's a bit, imagine it as if uh, Air Canada pilots spend most of their career in the airport and once or twice got into an airplane. So that's, that's kind of, we, that's, that's how it works. Most of our job is on the ground supporting human spaceflight uh, by giving the crew perspective. So, and there's so many things going on right now. This is an amazing time in the space program with the, you know, the explosion of, a, of a private investments in space, uh, uh, the new countries that are joining and the space, uh, space environment, uh, the new technologies that are enabling us to do so much more, so much more efficiently. Uh, this, it's really an exciting time to be, uh, mm. to be working in that field. As a crew member, that would be amazing, but yeah, I don't get to decide that. Yeah. Um, so two questions I ask everybody is, is there something you never travel without? A good luck charm or something from home or? Yes, I have, uh, <laughs> this is funny. Uh, so um, I have little, you know Smurfs? Yeah. Smurfs, yeah. So I have a little collection of Smurfs. Uh, I have a Smurfette, who is my wife. <laughs> and I, I went, as, as my kids were born, we bought little baby Smurfs for each of them. So I have, uh, I have four little Smurfs that are always in my suitcase. Uh, they're my family, and uh, they keep at home a, a Cosmo Smurf, <laughs> who's me. Yeah. So, and they all came to space with me. They did? Yeah, they all came to space with me. Snuck them in the luggage. Yes, 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 contraband up there, and they came back down. So. <laughs> Excellent. And last question is, um, is there a favorite place for you in Canada? A place like a happy place you go to in your mind, perhaps, and as you're lifting off in the Soyuz? Or? Absolutely. When I was um, a young teen, I must have been 11 or 12. Uh, it's when my, my dad took me for the first time uh, hiking in the woods in the winter, uh, just on cross-country skis. So we packed a lunch and looked at the map, and it's kind of the, the mystery of going through you know, a place with no trails, just deep snow uh, in the forest on the backside of uh, Mount Sutton, where we have a, a cottage. And the That's the Eastern Townships? Eastern Townships, yeah, near Sherbrooke, basically, mm. in Quebec. Uh, so... Uh, there's trails back there. This is where my, you know, my love for adventure and exploration was born on those uh, on those uh, hikes. Uh, I loved. I, whenever I can, I go back on those trails, and uh, I can close my eyes and go back there right now and see the amazement uh, through the little boy's eyes of the, you know, the joys of just exploring. You're you're a bit short of breath. And, it's cold air, and you get to, you know, you, know you, you kind of figure out where you're going, and you never know what's coming in the next corner. It's just exploring the world around you. I love to go back to, nice. to that There's place. something about the woods, the quiet of the woods in winter, too, which must be almost like space, I imagine. It is. There's something zen about it, yeah. This, like, muffled sound by the snow, yeah. Um, and the, you're kind of, you're in a little bubble. You hear your own breathing. You see the exhalation. Um, uh, there's huge parallels with that environment and, uh, and that spacewalk uh, as a chance to do. Uh, I think maybe in a way, as <laughs> I think I've spent a lot of, put a lot of energy trying to recreate that feeling that I had just uh, in the woods, uh, discovering you know, a, little, a little piece of beautiful Canada. Beautiful, well, I think we can leave it right there. Thank da you very much, Dave. David Saint-Jacques, thank you very much. Thanks, bye. 
That was David Saint-Jacques, Canadian astronaut and Royal Canadian Geographical Society fellow, on this first episode of Season 2 of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Join us again on April 30th as we begin our journey into the history and impact of the Hudson's Bay Company as it turns 350 years old. That's it for this episode of Explore. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. If you enjoy Explore, why not give us a five-star rating or even write up a nice review? It would mean a lot to us and to the future of the podcast. So until we explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a, a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left that. Simpson about June the 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means, it means that he knew all history is very strong. And we flew low over every inch of the country that could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160 lives or so. Well, I'm a first for Canada.